On this episode, we talk with Mita Nguyen and Ian Freed, who is a core collaborator of the Teacher Scientist Partnership Program at TAF. Mitam and Ian discuss the impact of technology on various communities and how technology interacts with society. Mitam is passionate about bridging private, public, and nonprofit entities to address urgent societal challenges. She is currently a political partner fellow for the Truman National Security Project and a fellow of Harvard Business School's Young American Leaders Program. Ian is a 30-year technology business veteran, a startup advisor and investor, and former Amazon.com vice president of devices, where he led teams working on Kindle, Fire Phone, and Echo projects. My name is Mitha Nguyen, and I'm connected to TAF for many years now through Zithri and through a lot of my friends who've worked here or have served or have benefited from the work, and I really love what TAF does and what it brings to this community, so I'm really glad to, to be here. I'm Ian Freed. I've been spending the last about half year uh, working uh, with TAF and TAF as Sahali and uh, got to know TAF really through Zithri and David Harris. Probably about two years ago, uh, we had a, a great coffee and, and waffles, I think. Oh. Um, it always involves food. That's how Has I get to, you. It always involves food. You should food. write into Pi Day. Um, Ooh. Pi Day's oh. coming up. It's coming up. Pi Day's coming up. Three more that weeks. That sounds good. Four more weeks? Three more weeks. Three, yeah. one, four. Hence the name. So that's that's me. Just talking about your current work that you do in the ecosystem and your perspectives on equity in the space of technology and STEM. What types of things are you seeing? What types of things are you engaged in? And it's a really an open question and we'll just spin from there. It's gonna be a long answer for me. I think I've seen what technology shouldn't do mm-hmm. to communities and I, got to where I am uh, in a pretty long path. I grew up in a fishing village in Vietnam with no electricity or running water. Remember the first time that I saw a city and you know, we didn't have any even basic technology. My aunt gave us a blender once and on the one day that we had electricity that month, we turned on the blender and it shut off the electricity for the whole village. So <laughs> I grew up, you know, with zero technology and fast forward, I moved to the US. I grew up in low-income housing in King County uh, with a single mom. And fast forward, I worked at the city and then diagnosed as a cancer patient, got motivated and applied to Harvard, got in. And when I was there, one of the things I really wanted to do with my life when I was in chemo was work with immigrants in Europe because I saw what was happening there before all the chaos that happened now. And I saw kind of the tea leaves, and one of the things I really wanted to do was see how technology could be applied. And so I signed up for the Smart Cities course in Bergamo, Italy. And it was during that journey of this whole design thinking piece that I realized that some solutions don't necessarily need technology. I realized that certain things can be augmented to scale up when the public sector and infrastructure needs are so great that we cannot address it with the way that we've been doing it. So that's a very long answer to how I landed here. I think it's, you know, having grown up with so many things that happened to me and my family and my community and not knowing how those decisions were made and trying to figure out how they all fit together landed me here. And I think the work that we do now is at the intersection of technology, it's the intersection of infrastructure, it's the intersection of equity, and scaling up to what's a massive, urgent human need in housing in our region, our state, and in our country right now.
pretty awesome. <laughs> awesome story. I guess my perspective on technology is there's no kind of particular monopoly on good ideas. Good ideas can come from anywhere, from anyone. I think the great thing about technology that I've seen over almost 30 years, I guess over 30 years, is um, it tends to offer people a chance to have the best ideas kind of come to fruition a little faster than sort of lower tech fields, I might say. So if you have an idea, you can just, for example, go write software and make it happen. I think what we've had, at least in this country, is I think there's been a lack of kind of openness broadly to allow uh, people from all different cultures to have exposure to a range of different technology, um, whether that's software or engineering or hardware development. And um, one of the things that I really love about TAF, I mean, the first day I walked in there was to just see kids from all different backgrounds working on this stuff and, and with a, a ton of exposure. And I think from my perspective, the one kind of, it's both optimistic and, and less so, I think TAF is a really special place and there just need to be more places like TAF out there. When I've been involved in the classroom with kids at TAF, the creativity is, is really incredible. There's kids building a solar panel into a sweatshirt to um, charge a battery that can help them keep their cell phone charged. Like we're, you know, that's exactly what kids want to do, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but it's like, who thinks of that, right? And so um, that's just, I, I guess I see the creativity there because the exposure is there. And so we just need to, as a, as a society, increase that exposure as broadly as possible. What I would say uh, in companies like Amazon, and, and it's true at you know Google, Facebook, Microsoft, et cetera, they haven't been the best historically at opening up their companies and, and offering exposure to every community. And I think it's changing a little bit. It needs to change faster. And I think you know organizations like TAF can partner with some of these larger companies and actually help them see the path uh, to open things up a lot more. The assumption is that technology is neutral, right? Mm -hmm. Technology is a neutral thing, and it's and people fall. There's there's a few camps, but two of the main camps are you know those who believe that technology is relatively neutral and it's just the technology, and then there's a camp that says no. There are people who program technologies and their values and biases, even if it's just selection bias, get programmed into the technology. So the current slate of technologies that we have are reflective of a certain value system for what types of things deserve technological solutions or not. So there's power involved. It's, it's, it's necessarily power laden. So what I'd like to hear is just your perspectives on what is the role of power in mm. technology? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you see that playing out mm -hmm. in terms of the current economic engine that fuels places like Silicon Valley and the Research Triangle in Seattle to we've talked a little bit about HR selection and who gets funded. Mm -hmm. But just mm -hmm. fundamentally, how do you see the relationship between power? So this is the socio-technical 
uh, right? How do you see the relationship between power and technology? Yeah, so I think technology is as neutral as maps and data. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, I mean, it was an eye-opening day in grad school when I was, I created my own maps. I was like, wow, <laughs> there's, you can say all kinds of truths, right? So in terms of power and technology, I think you look at how international development decisions are made, right? I think there's a school of thought. I took a few classes at MIT and, you know, it's, it's what we try not to do is to create something and then find a place, you know, create a solution and find a place to apply it. I think that's the way that I hope technology does not get delivered. I think the design thinking aspect of technology is really fascinating of how close are you to the user that you're building it for. And so it's the hardest hardware you can possibly get in the probably the most antiquated and most regulated markets. And so that I think is the best potential of power in technology is how do you utilize it as a tool to scale up and address our greatest needs. I think technologies is, you know, such a basic thing for us to exist as humans, like from the most, the first tools that were created to where we are now, just now that it's happening at an astronomical rate that, you know, there's a lot of fear that we'll be overtaken by it. And I think the best application that we can have is to augment that, to be able to address the greatest need into flatten hierarchies and to utilize it as a tool to, to equalize power. I think I'm going to pretty much align with you on on a lot of this, but but maybe tell a tiny bit of a story. I think growing up, I was a firm believer in technology being neutral. Just seemed that way, you know. It's sort of like ask yourself if the wheel or the lever going way back in history, like is there inherently a power system with that or not? Mm. It's, it sort of seemed inherently like no. A wheel's great for everybody. It helps you get places faster, blah, blah, blah. And I think what I've grown to learn and observe, I think, is that it's really technology and uh, the concentration of wealth in the capitalist system that we have now that I think has the potential to distort what problem society is working on. Mm. So, for example... Where's, let's go back five years and ask yourself, where was some easy money? Now, it's, <laughs> it's not, it wasn't obvious then, yeah. but what problems did we solve five years ago, start to solve and, and are still solving today? Uber. It's great. People love it. It's so much more efficient to use Uber than to use a taxi. Similarly, Airbnb. It's also great. It's so much easier to just think about a place where you want to go and maybe spend a little less money. But if you ask yourself, like, stepping way back, are those societies most important problems to go solve? Is it really important to get a car at a moment's notice faster than you did before? It's great. It's convenient. But it's not solving a housing problem. It's not solving um, an education problem. It's not, you know, this is very timely. It's not solving, you know, violence in schools. Mm. But why is that? Well, I think it's because in some ways it's the easy money. 
people with disposable income, a lot of it, use Uber. And the VCs that fund Uber get a lot of people with a lot of disposable income. And so the value of Uber goes up and it's kind of self-reinforcing. And again, you step back and say, okay, it's a great thing they did, but it's not earth shattering. It's not moving society in an extremely positive way. Um, and I think if you look at the last, you know, five to 10 years of problems that have been worked on, it's hard to convince yourself that they are society's most important problems. I mean, another one that, you know, is also getting attention now is infrastructure. Our infrastructure in the US is kind of a disaster. And, you know, it's very hard with the current kind of venture investment and technology combined with today's capitalism to go solve an infrastructure problem. Again, it sounds like Blockable is starting to t do some of those things, but it's hard. It's much harder it's than solving like an app that gets you a car really fast. Not, not why though, why is it so hard? Which I think there's self-reinforcing, well, it, it's because, like, if I want to go fix a bridge, as an in, you know, let's say I drive over a bridge every day and it's really, like, got potholes and it's, I'm nervous on the bridge, there isn't a way for me to go pay a company individually to go do that. Whereas if you want to get a car from Uber, you pay a little money. So it, there's something about the way we've evolved infrastructure in terms of how it can be financed that's it's it's got to be kind of historically anyway it's been government-led yeah. and and whether that's always the way it needs to happen or the only way it needs to happen I don't know that's a good question but yeah I'll tie on to that yeah. I, I worked this is my first time doing full-time private sector work having worked in the government in the public sector my entire professional career. I was the public engagement lead for the city planning team in Seattle for six years and worked on every single neighborhood plan, the light rail station area planning. And I really saw how slow moving things can be. That's part of the hard part of infrastructure is that every single aspect of it, because you're looking, it's, you know, what you were saying earlier about how do you prioritize the greatest human need and work on that, it's when you are government, you are supposed to be the moderator of every single great need. For example, the Waterfront Project that I was the first of two employees on in Seattle, Waterfront Seattle, which I love. We still have yet to see it. And I love my friends who are working so hard and we're so close and they're showing renders of it at the, down, the state of downtown. And we're going to have a beautiful living room for Seattle, but it's going to take a really long time. And so I think the, the thing with government is it's really hard to get things moving because you have, you know, how do you choose the people to represent, best represent you? Who are the constituents that are accountable for certain things? You have coordination issues. I think that's one of the things that we're tackling at Blockable. And it's one of the reasons I joined is given my experience in the public sector, it's the coordination between the federal government, the state government, the county, cities, um, and then departments within each of those levels, right? So it's opaqueness makes a change endure. It also makes major shifts really difficult. So I think the role of technology is to augment that 
and to scale that. So I have huge hopes for public-private partnerships to address some of these huge needs. And I think that can also come in at multiple scales. So hopefully that's a part of future innovation and technology is that, you know, we can utilize the thinking and the rapid prototyping of what, what is possible within technology and apply it to those great human needs and show government a different path. And I think there's Office of Innovations all over the country, and so hopefully that'll that'll pick up. I'm gonna get high schoolish real fast. Um, <laughs> and that's the power of networks. So mm. two types of capital we, we generally talk about when we're talking about networks. One is social capital. Social capital we would define as the relationships that you have and your ability to derive value from those relationships. And then informational capital, which is about knowledge and how you acquire knowledge and are engaged in knowledge sharing. And then informational capital has this this other weird component where it's kind of like the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Mm. So with information capital, as you accumulate more of it, almost kind of how capital works in an economic sense, it's easier to get more. Mm. <laughs> Social capital is the same way. You know one rich person, it's easier to meet the next rich person because, you know, that's how that works. So what I'd like to talk a little bit about, because we, I think we do spend a lot of time in STEM education and we talk about these things in terms of knowledge and information, but talk to me a little bit about your networks. Like, how would you describe your social capital, your social networks, and how those networks are engaged in this type of progressive work? And then the ways that you're also staying informed. You made a big switch in, in terms of going from being a VP at Amazon to working on this project, which I'll let you talk a little bit about with TAF. How do your social networks and your information capital play into that type of work? Great question, super interesting. I, well, I'll take you back a little bit. When I, I, I joined LinkedIn, which is for me the major professional social network that I use, and, and I kind of made a purposeful choice to try to keep Facebook much more about friends and there's, there's overlap mm -hmm. between friends on Facebook and friends on LinkedIn. And yes, I'm friends with some people at work. It's, you know. However, I made a conscious decision to, on LinkedIn, especially in my early days, actually only link with people who I could say something good about mm. and that I knew well enough so that if I was ever, it's kind of like, will you do a reference for somebody? And I think it was kind of a good decision, but I'll acknowledge that I was, you know, probably more than halfway through my career when I made that decision. So it was kind of easy for me. If I was 22 years old, you know, I'm going to try to make as many connections as I possibly can. But what I found to be really interesting is uh, I made the decision last July to leave Amazon after 12 years and, and really leave. Uh, the tech private sector for 20, I'd been working in it 25 to 30 years. And I thought I wanted to really take advantage of my professional social network to try to help TAF. Mm -hmm. And so I actually purposely didn't really say what I was doing next for a while and was fortunate enough to have somebody ask me if I was, if I had left Amazon, a reporter. And I, I was kind of waiting for that. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, all right, well, I'm going to try to get 
the, the work that I'm doing for TAF basically to help uh, recruit software engineers to come and uh, help the teachers teach uh, computer science for the kids. I basically said, I'm going to wait until I have a reporter write about that to announce that I'm no longer at Amazon. And it actually worked, which was kind of <laughs> cool. And the thing that was great is, you know, that article came out. I posted on LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, and I think I tweeted about it, too. And tons of people, like, among the most followers and, and likes I've ever had on all the social networks combined um, occurred because of sort of that switch. And we immediately were able to recruit people for uh, the volunteer program for TAF. So I really tried to take advantage of my social network to cause something uh, new to happen and, and you know, of, of social uh, benefit. The other thing that happened recently, and you know, some people are great fundraisers. I don't think of myself as a great fundraiser. Uh, I don't personally like making those phone calls or anything like that. But when uh, when Task Luncheon came up, I thought, well, I'm just going to email a few friends because they know what I'm doing, and I'm just going to remind them and say this is the organization I'm helping. And so I sent out, you know, we're, we need to fill a table of ten people. So I sent out eight emails to friends from work mostly, and uh, my wife and I would go, who would be the other uh, other two of the 10. And within three hours, I had eight accepts and no, no rejections. So I think that was good. Um, it's a high five. <laughs> messed our friend up there, but. So I, you know, I tell that story because I think it, like, I think if it was a different organization that I hadn't kind of switched to and made some kind of news about and, and told people how important it was to me, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been that easy. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, for those of us who are maybe more advanced in our career, who have built up a ton of social capital, it's you should think about how to use that for social good. Mm-hmm. And so I consciously tried to do that. Um, so far, it's working. I'm going to add one other thing unrelated, but, but in the end, related. Um, you talked about social capital, information capital. The third one that I think is increasingly important, and I think it, we've seen it this year, ethical capital. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way to build up ethical capital is be true to yourself in whatever you do. You know, make hard decisions that sometimes aren't the easy path, but they're the, you know, the true ethical path. Um, Explain yourself if you have to tell somebody some bad news and explain why. And you get to sleep really well every night. And that's the secondary benefit of it. But then what you get is people trust you. They know you're never going to let them down or if you have to let them down because of forces you can't control you'll tell them here's what's going on and i think ethical capital we've seen plenty of examples of horrible ethics obviously the me too movement is shining a bright light on that there are plenty of other examples particularly recently it matters it's going to matter more in the future than it ever has so build your social capital 
build your information capital and build also build your ethical capital. Mm -hmm. It's it's important. Mm -hmm. Ditto. <laughs> Drop the mic. I totally agree on on those three points, and I think for me, I didn't know that what I was doing was networking. For me, it was more of like I'm trying to survive. And no one was telling me how anything worked. And so I always tried, you know, one of the things I challenged myself to do when I was in my 20s was how can I make myself even more uncomfortable in rooms where I know people don't want me there or where I look like I shouldn't belong? Like, I went to probably, I don't know if many of you know Shauna Kazi. She started Social Media Club in Seattle. She was this person who just brought together the social media community in Seattle when it was start, starting to bud. And she was always great about bringing people in. And so there was a an event at a law firm. It's like one of the very first events on the internet and law. And, you know, like nobody was going to these things. And I showed up even though I was working for the city because I was like, I'm going to be so uncomfortable there. I'm not going to know any of this language, but I'm going to go into these rooms where I feel like I don't belong just so... I understand something that I know is going to shift. So I think that's why my network is so vast. The intersection of social capital and information capital is your what is your vocabulary and your ability to connect with people on a deeper level at where they are. And the only way you'll get there is to make yourself really uncomfortable and to expand your way of thinking. And I also have joined every single leadership program under the sun that I could get into because, you know, that's what choices do I have? Like, that's the only, you know, when I was growing up at Bellevue, there was Youth Eastside Services. I worked with them. The first community organization I worked, um, I volunteer with is the Japanese American Citizens League because I didn't see many students of color. And so I think I've but that was just my survival skill that ended up being something that's of value now. When I came back from Harvard, um, it was for family reasons, but I saw where our region was. After I worked at the city, I worked for Governor Inslee as his new media manager in the months between Washington State and going to Harvard. And when I came back, I saw where our region was. And I was like, I've never seen our community so isolated. And I thought that the congressional race would be the one thing that would help me understand the whole picture of what's happening from everybody in business to elected officials to nonprofits to individuals. So put yourself in a place where you might not belong, but you feel like you need to be in the room. And I, you know, now like I have people from, um, I'm also on the board for the UW Alumni Association because I really, I think when I was there, that was when I really shined. And I had an amazing network of folks there. And I think to your point around just integrity and ethics is that when people work with me or they connect with me, they know what they're getting. Like Zithri, when he gives me a recommendation for a student, I know the quality of people and their background and what they're going to bring to the table. So stay consistent and deliver um, because also Seattle's a small town. And no matter where you are, I think it's really important to have people understand that it's not only what you do. I know, you know, like I hope Blockable is a huge success and we're able to scale up our production and do the work that we do and address the housing crisis and whatever's next. I know that wherever I go, all those relationships, all the clients that we work with, they know that 
what I brought to the table is I really genuinely care about where they came from and that they're not just people that I work with, they're people that I'm investing in. So it's the quality of the information you're getting, the quality of, of the people that you're bringing into your life and also stay consistent. There's this book out by Ray Dalio called Principles and I might not agree with everything he's done in his life, but I think the thing that you have to have and along all of these things is what are the personal principles that you're working from? And what, how do you show up when you interact with other human beings? Because, you know, as a cancer survivor, we don't have much time. None of us have permanence. And so what we do and how we treat each other is all we have. And that's what carries on. So whatever you bring to the table, whether you have a talent in social capital, like I've realized that I was doing all along and my way of surviving the system um, and being curious and getting more information capital and then making sure people knew what they're doing with my ethics. It's just know who you are and how you're showing up and what you're doing with yourself every day. And people are going to know, like, be, you know, not everybody can fill a table. I'm telling you, that's like a thing in <laughs> Seattle. It's mm-hmm. it's. I mean, I'm even worried when I go, like, can I fill a table? Like, but it, it's because of your passion and like, people saw that you were serious to leave a really amazing brand and commit to this organization and people know that they're getting you and they want to support what you're doing. So be good enough so they can fill a table for an organization that you believe in. And I think that is part of the problem that we have to kind of move past is that the technology will only support the value system and social relationships that exist and you can't. I don't know if those things are perfectly bilateral. Yeah. I think there's an asymmetry there as well. And I think the thing that I really want to emphasize is technology is not an only an app. Mm-hmm. It's a way that you engage with community. It's mm-hmm. in it can also be how groups work together. It's it's in its best form is probably as an enabler. Mm-hmm. So gosh, I have so many things I want to cover first on the cultural I don't know if there's a way to quantify like probably the best party I've ever been to in Seattle in the area get yourself to a Sierra Sierra Leonean party I've been there you know it's gonna be in some like lodge somewhere some hall I've been everywhere from like Auburn to like down in Beacon Hill but you will be dancing with toddlers and grandmas in their 80s and eat the best food of your life. And that's, you know, like, I feel like my life is so much more rich because of that. I don't know if you can quantify that. Um, somebody who's doing a great job of that right now, especially, I think, you touched on the Seattle liberal whiteness, and it's painful. I think someone who's doing a pretty amazing job of quantifying or even visualizing data in an honest way that's driven by culture is Rebecca Solnit. She's done these alternative geographies of cities. That's actually how people cool. know cities. And she's just her writing right now is I think some of the best some of that best the best work. And to go to your music lyric, I think one of the things that stick with me is that phrase. I think it's from a Black Star album. Mm-hmm. And it's like I've been conditioned. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Mm-hmm. You know? And what you were talking about, Zithri, earlier, that we see ourselves as from the bottom, we got to get up here. And sometimes that's the outside world perceiving us. And we've got to undo that ourselves and get to where you are, right? Is you don't see that because 
you have like maximized your potential as a human being yeah, or yeah. you've strived for it and you you see the potential and it's infuriating for you to see other people do that to themselves it's like the same way when i see women of color and they're you know doing amazing work in the community and i just like as a cancer survivor i was like i don't want you to die i don't want you to die i'd rather not have you work on anything and take a few months off and take care of yourself and do that so I, part of this is like our survival has to be from our individual work on ourselves and to undo what has been told to us. Because I was taught all of this, like being here. And then in closing, I just want to go back to, you know, how powerful it is that we have TAF. Because you look at the words in it and we've covered the ground, but it opens up so many things. Technology, you know, what we've covered, how do we de define technology from, you know, building Amazon to what we do in housing, to enlightening people with stories about the intersections of what's happening in our community right now. Technology is defined in a very broad set of definitions. And it's not only necessarily an app or a website. Um, and I think the communities that TAF serves will continue to show us pathways for more creative solutions. They'll be finding the blockables and Amazons of the world and the next word is access how do we enable them how do we bridge the resources the funding how do we flatten the hierarchies and the barriers and the hurdles for the people that we're serving so that they can maximize what their potential is and to see themselves as what they're capable of instead of what society is telling them that they're not able to do and what people are stopping them from doing every day because of what they look like. And then finally, foundation. Foundation is a noun for, you know, probably the structure of a nonprofit, but also the foundations of community. What does that mean? How do we define it? What's our role in it? And how do we enable or protest the way that the systems are set up? And how do we take ourselves out of it to exemplify what it can be. And I love the example mm -hmm. that you made a very conscious, intentional decision to leave a pretty amazing sounding job. You probably had a very senior influential position because you knew that influence could walk you towards a different path that connected with who you are from your ethical capital. And so I think what are the foundations that we're going to build going forward? You know, and TAF is at the hub of that, but also each of us is a pillar in this community. And I don't see a path forward for Seattle without us being united. And I think there's a lot of really tough stuff that, I mean, I would love to hear the story of how you guys even got this building built one day, because like, you know, it's, it's a physical building. It's kind of a, microcosm of what goes down in a community. We've heard the scars of what happens with the Northwest African American Museum, all the cultural centers, all the community centers. And so I think this is a time for us to really figure out what our common ground is and bridge the resources of our community to address some of our most urgent needs because we've definitely left people behind. We systemically left them behind and we need our white brothers and sisters to get along for the ride and really, you know, how can they be a part of this foundation? Because 
we've got to do the work on ourselves and take care of our well-being. And when we have a whole community, when everybody is at the table and we need more people like you, because, you know, even the civil rights movement, some of the best assets were the white allies because they could speak a language. a show because Kim Burwell, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think, <laughs> how can we have more foundational people be a part of this conversation and enable them to have, you know, access to bridge the kids that we're here to serve. Because I wish I had this in my community when I was growing up. I would have probably taken a very different path than I did. And I kind of stumbled my way to where I am. But I wish, I wish, I mean, even when I was going through cancer treatment, I went and I cooked for the kids at the White Center Boys and Girls Club. Because I knew that, like, I don't know, like, what it made it out, the White Center community is who I want to serve because they're being systematically neglected. They're an unincorporated King County. Like even, you know, this intersection of place, of technology, of community, of infrastructure is what TAF does. And it's amazing what has already been built. So I can't wait for what's to come, but I'm so grateful for this conversation. But it's, we have a lot of work to do. And a part of that is how do we, how do we forgive our own community scars? Mm -hmm. How do we forgive ourselves? And heal inside of us and that it's okay for people of color to take care of ourselves before we take care of our community and then how do we get white allies to really see our pain and that we're doing the work but we have so much work to do that it's piled on how can we share the collective burden and build a pretty stable foundation instead of one section be made of of you know porous I don't know plastic <laughs> or paper <laughs> another one being made of steel so how can people stay in touch? Well, periodically we'll do uh, articles, I think, on the TAF site about the work we're doing. That The program is called the, the Teacher-Scientist Partnership Program, which uh, David Harris, a former TAF employee, really created. And uh, so TSP, uh, Teacher-Scientist Partnership, is the program. And that'll be mentioned on the TAF site periodically. I'm the easiest person to find on the internet, <laughs> like in every single uh, social media platform. Uh, so at MyTam, M-Y-T-A-M-N, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Pinterest. My Pinterest boards are amazing. So, and also, you know, I think one of the ways that I try to bridge all our communities is through food tours. Yep. So if you really love food and you want to better understand, I think one of my secret dreams is to be the culinary anthropologist for Seattle when I retire, is to just really better understand the pathways of how our people got here. Like one of my favorite things is when you get full at Cafe Salam, it comes with a Vietnamese baguette. And I think that's so Seattle mm -hmm. that you get this like very African dish and it comes with a Vietnamese baguette because that's how interconnected our community is, we need people, like all the folks on this podcast right now, to help make that bridge and to do everything from food tours to podcasts, so. Learn more about the Technology Access Foundation at techaccess.org. If you enjoyed listening to me, Tom, and Ian's conversation, you can read more about them and others in the forthcoming book. This is the work the book will discuss how the Technology Access Foundation grew from an after-school program to a nationally recognized thought leader and innovator in STEM education. Stay tuned for more episodes and details about the book. 
Go to techaccess.org to sign up for TAF's newsletter and register to attend the 2018 TAF Varsity Luncheon. Witness what happens when barriers to succeed for students from traditionally underserved communities are eliminated and access to deep STEM learning experience is granted. Be sure to subscribe and follow the Technology Access Foundation on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.